Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. Can you believe that this is already episode 25 of the Venture Fist podcast? I mean, that is absolutely insane. I can't believe how quickly this has flown by. Well, for today's episode, I interviewed Jay Habegger, who is the CEO and co-founder of OwnerIQ, a second-party data marketplace. This venture-backed Boston company has over 800 retailers and product brand marketers who use the OwnerIQ platform to maximize their data asset. Jay is a serial entrepreneur whose last company, Bitpipe, was acquired by TechTarget in 2004, and his career has been focused in the tech industry from the outset, having worked for a company that was building the foundation of the internet in the early 90s. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like the journey through his professional career, the details behind Owner IQ, advice for founders who are raising capital, hiring and building out teams, and a lot more. All right, quick side note. Now that we are on our 25th episode, we have an amazing archive of interviews with lots of founders and operating executives. So if you have just started to listen to our podcast, I highly recommend going back to hear each episode as there are so many inspirational stories, plus lots of useful advice. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Jay. Jay, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. Uh, Where did you grow up? Place called Boulder, Colorado, which is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the best place in the country. Why? Well, have you been to Boulder? I have not. Uh, I've been to. Um, where did I go? I've been to Colorado once, but <laughs> you obviously need to visit more. I know. Uh, Colorado is fantastic. Generally, Boulder is absolutely spectacular and has become more so. I mean, it was at the time I grew up in there in the '80s. Before that, it was very counterculture. Mm-hmm. So it was a great place to grow up because you got exposed to a lot of different ideas. Um, some of them are now legal too, so that's a good thing. Um, and uh, by virtue, and it's a university town. There's a lot of educated people there, associated with what was then called um, the NIST uh, or Bar Standards, the Atomic Clock, things like that. National Center for Atmospheric Research. So there's a lot of um, uh, good research going on. And uh, recently, within the last, well, since I've left, actually, but I, I don't think it's because of that, uh, has become quite a uh, home to a lot of uh, startup activity and a lot of uh, tech activity. So it's a very nice place to visit. And nice place to live, too. Yeah. No, it's uh, definitely a lot of startup activities going on in Colorado these days, no doubt. But so when you started your career, uh, you worked at Advanced Network Services. Was that the first job professionally or was there something before that? No, that, that it was my first job and that advanced network services for those of you that there's no reason why anybody would remember this because right, yeah. it was so lost the time. Uh, ANS was a joint venture between uh, what was then MCI, which is one of the large tele- telecom companies, sure. and IBM, which is still around. And they actually had the contract from the National Science Foundation to run the internet backbone which is primarily connecting at that time research universities in these things called regional networks. Here in New England, uh, I was run out of BBN called NearNet, uh, which was the regional network here and here that, that they connected and was part of this. They actually recruited me to come from the University of Colorado to move out to New York to join that. And at the time, I thought that was a fantastic thing because I had discovered the Internet when I was in college, you know, was using it on my, on my little VAX account. Um, had, had been started working on a Sun uh, Spark station, thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I was thrilled that they recruited me to join this, and I thought it was going to be the Microsoft of the Internet. Um, it didn't work out that way, obviously. One of the reasons why it didn't work out that way, one of the things I learned from that experience is corporate structure matters, 
ANS was actually created as a nonprofit, which was a really interesting uh, scheme that they that they they cooked up. And the reason why at that time there was a big debate about whether the internet was going to be commercial or whether it was going to be reserved for government and research use. Um, and that was now it seems silly, but that was an incredibly hot debate at the time. And so IBM and MCI to avoid that crass commercialism actually created it as a nonprofit, which ultimately led to the demise because it had a very muddled mission of what it was actually trying to do. But it was a great experience to me. All the things that we used today uh, had their precursors and um, ANS wasn't really sure, as I said, what it, what it wanted to be when it grew up. So it was working on a lot of different things. We had a whole security division working on first firewalls. We were putting the first connectivity out did some of the first um, application servers for email and things like that. I remember first seeing the web, seeing the web for the first time in, in our lab. Um, and uh, the first web browser that was, that was out there was done um, uh, out of uh, Switzerland, CERN. Um, so this was all the foundation of the web. This is 92, 94 timeframe. Yeah, that's right. We started there, in, uh, started there in January of 92. Wow. was when I started and left in 94. Um, just as the web was really really becoming known. Um, nobody really knew about it in the 91, 92, 93 time frame. But of course, by 94, you know, I believe that's when Netscape came out. And, mm. uh, and then at that point, that was on the cover of Time Magazine, which was still big at that point. Yep. Uh, and people started to, started to hear about it and it became a, became a real thing. Got it. And what brought you to Boston? Well, ultimately, I joined a company called Thompson, uh, which is best known in Boston for, uh, well, now it's Reuters, I should say, Reuters, uh, uh, Thompson Reuters, and uh, Thompson Financial is well known here in Boston, and uh, I was recruited by Thompson. They had a lot of information properties, and they w were concerned, rightly, about what the internet was going to mean for a lot of those uh, database properties, and so I was working on that problem with them in terms of helping launched some of the first internet database products, and uh, that was run out of Boston, and so that's why I moved up to Boston. Got it, okay. And then from there, you went to State Street Global Advisors. Yeah, I was at State Street Global Advisors because that was, uh, again, another thing that was happening early on uh, was now all the financial companies were providing access to your retirement 401k, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. through um, online portals. Again, it's hard to imagine that that didn't always exist, right. uh, but that was that was new then. And so they were doing that, and I was really interested in that work. And so learned about sort of large-scale, what we would call SaaS services now is, 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 is where I learned about that. So this was all like foundation. So you started, you know, 92, 94, you know, the infrastructure of the web to mm -hmm. helping companies actually get online and, and build out this first iteration of web apps. Yes, it has been a great career. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, but then you took the leap of uh, being an entrepreneur and starting your own company. So what was the, you know, you were in these larger Thompson State Street organizations. What laid you down the path of starting your own company? Well, I, I actually always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, my dad was a physicist. Uh, he worked at IBM, a large company, but in Boulder, he too absorbed some of that uh, gestalt. And he had thought that he wanted to start his own firm. He actually never succeeded at that. But the impetus to do that did succeed in me, in the mm -hmm. sense that I was really motivated by watching what he was doing and the things that he was working on and the projects he was working on, largely in our basement, uh, innovating 
And um, so I always knew that was the path. And I had even, we were joking earlier before we started about the name of that first company, Bitpipe. I'd actually picked that name out long before I started the company. Really? Uh, yeah, I picked it out at ANS because we would, we would jokingly talk about Bitpipes, things things that you can move a lot of data down. Yeah. And that term was tossed around fairly casually. I always liked it and said, yeah, yeah I'm going to name my first company that. Okay. Um, but wasn't sure what it was going to be. And um, one of the things I observed is that at the time, you know, all of the the big changes uh, that were being created were really advertising-driven changes, uh, meaning that they were online services that were propelled by advertising. And that's largely still true today. Um, you know, there's a few exceptions to that. Amazon arguably is an exception, although they got a pretty huge advertising business associated with it. But, you know, Facebook and Google, those are advertising-based companies. And, and Yahoo before them was. And so all the big things were being done by sort of advertising and marketing-driven funding models, providing services. So I started looking at that. Thompson had taught me a lot about publishing. Um, and uh, my first company, Bitpipe, was effectively an online marketing tool for enterprise IT marketers, people that were trying to, the Cisco's and the IBM's that were trying to sell stuff to the State Streets and the Fidelities and the Delta Airlines and people like that. And um, my background was technology, it was on the internet, and I, as I said, I had this publishing background. So it kind of all came together to pull that together and, and, um, and start, start that company. So what did it actually do? Like, how did it connect, uh, you know, the vendors with the customers? Yeah, we were we were a lead gen company for okay. um, for, for enterprise IT companies, and mm -hmm. what they would do at the time, they had all this content that they were creating as part of their sales mission. And again, listening to this now, it's hard to imagine what that was like. But this was printed material that they would carry into a meeting, mm -hmm. and then as an afterthought, they would create a online version of that, a PDF of that, for example. And they would maybe place it on their websites, um, but there was no concentrated, there was there was no concerted effort to try to get people to actually engage with that content and use the reach of the web and the internet to do that. And so what Bitpipe effectively did was provide a, a way for them to take that content and get it in the hands of enterprise IT professionals. You know, now... There's a whole class called white paper marketing and content marketing, of which is a descendant of this idea. Um, you know, IDG has a pretty big business, IDG Connect, doing this now. Um, so it's now a pretty common technique. Uh, it's a lot harder in the age of Google and those, Google being so effective in terms of finding that kind of simple, simple content searches. It's kind of hard to to create a um, a business sort of like what we did with, with Bitpipe then, but that's what it was about: helping take content that you're creating, get it in the hands of the people that you want to buy from you or engage with you. But was it a destination site that the head of IT at State Street would go to this website to find this content, or was it? It was both. So yes, we had that, but the way that we got scale again, was a precursor to what uh, what has happened online, which is that we would make partnerships with all the large IT publishers. Mm -hmm. And they would embed our, well, now we would call it a widget, they would embed our widget onto their sites, and that would allow people coming to those properties to do searches for various content. And when they did that search for content, it was actually powered by us. Mm. Um, and the, we would put the, put the, the uh, search results into that, into that site and the, the IT professional could engage with it there. And that's how we got reach. And so there was a time when, you know, any IT site you looked at, uh, Bitpipe was providing the white paper content, if you will, for that, uh, for that, for that website. 
And um, that was how, that's how we got scale. It's how we got reach. And, and all of those companies were, were buying from us to get it out there and uh, generate leads. I mean, we, at, its, at its heyday, there was no more effective way of generating uh, good and valuable leads for your sales force to call on than what we were doing at, at BitPipe. And that's ultimately what drove the transaction. And how much did the evolution of the web affect your business? So now people would think about SEO as your strategy, right? And inbound marketing with content, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when you were starting BitPipe, what was that evolution of how content was found online? Yeah. Well, if you recall, Google was just getting started. Right. So when exactly. I started BitPipe, Google effectively did not exist. Exactly. I mean, they may have been starting, but there was no practical, people didn't know about it. So by the time we sold it, though, that was no longer true. Yeah. Um, they were still, you know, they had don't have the domination that they have today by any stretch, but uh, they were they were becoming very effective. So over that period of time, when we started, it was kind of brands you knew. And the old line publishers had an advantage because there was a brand that you knew. Like IDG had Network World and publications mm-hmm. like that. People, World. Yeah, exactly. So people knew those publications. They would go to the websites of those publications. There was a lot of what the time was called you know, direct navigation to, to brands that you already kind of were familiar with. Um, and that was why our strategy was to go partner with those brands, do things that they couldn't do, and give them this tool that they could embed in their sites. And so we were soaking up effectively that direct, direct navigation from all IT professionals doing that. Well, as Google and search became more predominant, the predominant mode by which you found content and you didn't go to those brands and increasingly the brands cease to matter now, um, you, you, we would get more and more of our traffic to our branded property, bitpipe.com, mm-hmm. and it would be coming via SEO. And now, of course, if you look now, you know, that's what the, it's been decimating the publishing world because in those, with a few exceptions, those brands matter less and less and less. And there's very little directed navigation to those brands. You know, you, if you want to find something and it's a real sort of directed learning, you'll go to Google, search for it. Um, and if you're just casually browsing, you're going to look at aggregations like on your iPhone, you know, the popular news, things like that, or Facebook. So it's, it's really tough to be a web publisher right these days. I mean, that is one thing that I, I look at that. that. Of all the tough gigs, that is a really tough gig today. Like, like you do something to say. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a business model that pays the bills. We're the publishing companies with the uh, advertising supported model of you know CPMs is just that's that's it's tough. very very tough. Very very tough. tough to have a lot, a lot of page views. Mm-hmm. But um, so what was the the eventual outcome for Bitpipe? Uh, we sold it to a local company called Tech Target, mm-hmm. uh, who is a public company now. Um, uh, Greg Strakosh, who's the CEO and still the CEO, he may quibble with me, but I choose to believe that he took that company public on with, with, the, with the IP that we sold him. Um, and I'm very happy about that. I'm happy that it had a great outcome for them. And uh, they were they had a mission to be a online um, IT resource, and that and that was the mission that they were founded with as opposed to all these other companies that had come from a legacy of print and were migrating online. They started online and had very focused search sites and still do. Um, so we sold the company to them as a $40 million transaction, which in this day and age doesn't sound like a lot, but with BitPipe, we only had nine in, um, and it was a relatively short holding period. So everybody made out pretty well on that transaction. And then somehow decided to do it again. <laughs> Well, I was actually working for Greg at uh, Tech Target and realized pretty quickly that kind of 
starting companies and figuring out that problem and taking it from zero to something was was the thing only the, the only thing that I really knew how to do, mm-hmm. um, and so it became pretty. It became very clear to me very quickly that there was going to be another one, and then it was just a matter of time in terms of figuring out what that was going to be and uh, how that was going to get put together. And well, the rest is history. It is owner IQ now, but um, it became very. It was very clear. I would say within days that. Yeah, I'm gonna have to, I have to go start another one. Right. Yeah. So that does bring us to today of Owner IQ, and uh, talk about the you know the, how did you discover the idea that that led you down the path of creating this company? Well, the idea that we originally had, the thesis that we originally had, which is still embedded in what we do, but boy, the world has changed, the market has changed, and we've had to change along with it um, to make to, to make that idea actionable. The original thesis was very simple. The original thesis was in order to run better digital marketing, you or you will run better better digital marketing if you know what have consumers have bought and what they're interested in. It sounds like a pretty straightforward proposition. But of course, at the time and still today, that begs the question, well, how do you know what consumers are interested in? How do you know how do you predict their behavior? And the idea that we hit upon is we can predict behavior based on what we call brand and product interaction. So the simple example, or the most extreme example of that is what you bought. If I know what you bought, to a high degree, I can predict what you're going to buy again. Um, but I also, it's also true if I know the kind of products and brands that you're, that you're browsing and looking at. And that's, that's kind of where we originally got started. So the way we made that idea actionable at first was we borrowed a playbook from the BitPipe, or we borrowed from the BitPipe playbook, and we started aggregating product support material. Very simple idea. If you come and engage with product support material, unless you've got a really weird hobby, you you own that thing. Right. And so we could we could use that. What uh, we dis- we discovered with that is that the the scale volumes that we were going to need in the consumer marketplace or selling to consumer based advertisers was a lot bigger than what we needed in the B2B market that we were familiar with. And so we instantly ran into a question of how do we get scale? Of course, we had also solved this problem at BitPipe before, which is go work directly with those brands that already have traffic coming to them. So we started working directly with manufacturers. And from there, we started working directly with retailers in terms of sourcing data directly from them. And then we got hitched onto the programmatic wagon in terms of how media gets bought and sold. And that really, putting all those things together is what the queue looks like today, where we take data from you know all sorts of companies, but the core of it is brands and, and product brands and retailers. We allow them to share data with one another and use that to activate what we call programmatic media, which is a fancy phrase for media that uses data that's bought by computers uh, in real-time auctions. So give me an example of that. Like what, like- an actual use case. Yeah, a typical use case for us would be consumers going to Whirlpool to look at dishwashers or, or uh, washing machines or refrigerators. They go and they study features uh, on the Whirlpool site, and then ultimately they're going to go out into retail. They're going to go look at various retailers, look for features, look for availability. What we give Whirlpool the ability to do is to say, hey, these consumers came to my site, they, did, they looked at these kinds of products, and it allows the retailer to access that data and use that data to put ads in front of those people as they move around the internet, as they do their research, to actually ultimately then come and, and ultimately buy that product. In the case of Whirlpool, it's probably going to be in-store because most white goods are still bought at a physical location, but nonetheless drive them, drive them into a store. So that would be a typical use case for us. You look on a product brand, 
the 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 the, uh, the brand can take that data, make it available to the retailer, and the retailer can use it to solve that last mile problem, which is to pull you actually into the store. And they do it with display advertising that you see as you're doing your online activities. And is this a, a like a marketplace that the retailers are purchasing this data from and is there like a comp, like a competitive bid process like just it isn't so much the competitive bid process it's that the data owners retain control it is a marketplace but it's a marketplace in the sense that the data owners are there and they have think of them as having a stall whirlpool has a stall it's whirlpool data um, there are people that want to have access to Whirlpool data. Typically, for example, they're retailers. The retailers can come in and Whirlpool can say, all my retailers can have it, some subset can have it, or you have to permission one by one. And they, they, the data owners have that control. That's a hallmark of our, of our system, which is that the data owners retain control of how they, how they use that data. And so in that sense, it is a marketplace, but think of it more as a, as a bazaar with, you know, with each individual data owners having their stall and deciding who they want to sell to and, and how much and um, at what price and under what terms and conditions. And it can vary from data owner to, to and can and does vary from data owner to data owner. So you're managing that whole process for these companies. So you have to work with a double-sided customer, right? So you're dealing with both the brands and retailers in this example. Yeah, the, the market that we're in now, the way to think about the market we're in now is something that we call um, uh, transparent data exchange among brands. So if you think about where marketing has come over this long period of time, all marketing today is data-driven. You're either using data to target media, the, the ads that you're running. You're using data to measure the effectiveness of those ads. You're using data to understand the behavior of your customers. All of those require data sets to do it. Now, typically, you're going to use the data that you're generating as, as part of your own activities, and you should do that. But if you want to know anything about what's happening outside of your organization, you have to get that data from somewhere. We provide a better way of doing that. And that better way of doing that is using the data from brands that are relevant to to, to you. In the case of a retailer, um, it's very obvious it's the brands that they sell. People are going to look at those brands before they come to me. So to understand my customer, to sell, to find more customers, to, to do all those things, I would want to use data from the brands that I sell. From a brand's perspective, it's very obvious and go to the retailers that sell my stuff and use their data to understand what's actually happening with consumers and market to them potentially or, or just understand what they're like. And you, that extends to other cases where are not retailers and product brands, but they have a natural affinity. I mean, you think of sort of two kinds of brands that are trying to reach sort of people around family formation. Maybe one brand, um, you know, a, a brand that makes uh, baby equipment, you know, they have uh, insight into family formation because that's where people are going to do that. You think of a, a brand that's selling 529 plans, which are, you know, a tax preferred uh, savings plans, often bought in the context of new family formation. Those are a natural affinity. They're non-competitive, and there's a natural affinity between what they're doing. And we enable those kinds of things to happen in a way that would never, would never was able to happen before. Before, you had to depend on an aggregator that made a business of aggregating large sets of data. We enable individual brands to make direct relationships with one another to use very specific data sets. That's a new capability on the marketing horizon. And um, we're the leading company that does that. And how, how do you monetize, or like, what's your revenue model? The the u exchange and use of data only makes sense if you're going to do something with it. 
right? It's You can go make data partnerships all day long, get access to data sets, but if you never do anything with it, it's not very interesting to anybody. So we, we make money when you actually use that data. So when you use that data to do maybe it's some sort of insights where you're building some customer journey model, be fees associated with using the data for that. If you're gonna use it for targeting media, you know, you're gonna buy an ad based on where this person was before, um, there's going to be a fee to us associated with doing that. If you're going to use this data to measure the effectiveness of ads that you're running, there's a fee associated with that. What we like to say is we get paid when you use it, activation. You can go in and make all the partnerships you want, but when you start using it, that's when we get paid. There's a toll booth effectively, and we get paid when you do that. Got it. Okay. Now, you've raised venture funding. Yes. Um, what, what advice would you give to founders that are looking to raise capital for the first time since you've done it you know, multiple times? Yeah. There is a lot of advice uh, that I would give. It's very situationally specific. You know, I think that maybe the one thing to, because this conversation could go many ways in terms of things we could talk about. But the, the one thing that I have learned um, is not to get hung up on the obvious headline about valuation. Um, and frankly, the media doesn't help this, right? The, the talk of unicorns is seemingly all that anybody talks about, yeah. which is a headline valuation number. Right. But yet from an from a entrepreneur's outcome perspective and for the investors in the early and certainly in the early stage of that, there are so many other things that go into how that's going to turn out for you. Um, most of them have very little to do with the valuation that you invested in. It's not unimportant, but it's not the only thing that matters. Um, for example, you know, it certainly used to be the case. I haven't been in a super early stage deal here on the West Coast, on the East Coast in a long time. But there used to be all sorts of other, what we call, or in the industry are called features, um, liquidation preferences, um, dividends perhaps, change of control provisions, things of these, this nature. Those are just simply the raw uh, term sheet attributes that change, radically change economics for, uh, for founders and early stage investors. Those things require a lot of attention. And I, and I think in negotiating the initial deal, probably Time spent there is in many ways better spent than time spent on that valuation. Um, and then in the as things time goes on, more capital gets raised, rounds come in on top of it. Um, it's those features and how those the dynamics of those rounds that ultimately change your your economics. The, one of the things that I, I talk about is that if you're looking at your outcome in a, a company that you started, there's actually three things going on. There's the execution about how you did as a company. There's the market dynamics in terms of how the market's looking at you. And this is when I'm talking about marketing, I'm talking about capital markets, acquirers, things of that nature. And then there's ultimately, how did the other financing rounds go? Because it, it all depends on when you came in, what terms you, under which you came in, and how that interplays with those other two factors. Very hard to predict. And it's not really the valuation at the end of the day that, or and it's certainly not the valuation in any particular round that um, has a lot to say about the outcome. So yeah. that's probably one piece of advice that I would give. Yeah, and that's great. I've never heard that, like, to focus on the other things except, you know, the valuation you do, like, that's in the headlines. And, you know, every company wants to get the premium valuation, right, the most for their equity. But to have that advice, that's, that's I've never heard that. So. Yeah, well, the valuation is the headlines. That's what everyone wants to talk about. Yeah. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you get paid by the exit valuation. But it's the exit valuation that matters. Right. All the everything else comes leading up to that is somewhat notational. Mm -hmm. It's the exit value that actually matters. And um, in fact, if you get ahead of your skis on valuations, 
it really comes back to haunt you. Yeah, big time. So now it's it's an art, not a science. So nobody knows exactly when that's happening or what looks great today may not look great twelve months from now. But um, uh, the the key thing is at the end of the day, it is only the exit valuation that matters. Yeah. Well, that's you see that in the headlines now too. It's like, well, this company, you know, they raised at a you know million dollar billion dollar valuation, and they finally went public, but they're actually trading less than their private valuation or something like that. Yeah, I mean, when you get to that level of being a unicorn with that kind of headline valuation, you know, there's a lot of growth that's got to be happening, yeah. and you got typically you're losing a lot of money to fund that growth. I mean, that that is very much running a walking a tightrope without a net. I mean, that's a very tough situation to be in. Uh, if you pull it off, I mean, the, the spoils are spectacular, but it's really only a handful of times that that gets pulled off successfully. What about scaling a company? Like, what's the, some of the lessons learned along the way of, you know, scaling and growing companies that you've learned? Uh, there are so many. Um, the Every phase has its particular challenges. Uh, every time I'm in it at the time, like, oh, this is terrible. This is so difficult. This is so hard. And then the next phase comes along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can't say that uh, it ever gets easier. That, that's, I haven't observed that yet. Um, and uh, the, the, the one advice, I guess, that I've learned in some of it painful ways is that at the end of the day, there really are only two things that matter, which is capital and HR. Um, almost everything else can take care of itself to a degree. Um, if you get those two things right, uh, a lot of good things happen. And if you get either of those two things wrong, it's really difficult to, to fix it. And um, I think that's, uh, especially on the HR side, um, that is one that... What do you mean by that? Is that like building the right culture, obviously the right team? Um, it's, it's everything around that soft stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hiring the right talent. So for example... Um, you hear a lot about that now in terms of startups, hire the right talent. It's, 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 everybody says that. But in practice, if you're a thinly capitalized startup, you're going to be able to recruit great talent around you if the people, you have a close group of folks that believe in you. But you have all these other functions that you need, and those people are competing in an open labor market. So you have to induce them to come work for you. That can be very difficult if you're a very thinly capitalized startup. You're not going to be, you're generally not going to be able to hire at the top of the talent pool. So, you know, you make a lot of little compromises along the way that you don't think are going to have that impact or going to have a negative impact or you can work around them. But the, every one of those little compromises is, uh, is at some level a little death by a thousand cuts, you know. And uh, I think that's just a very difficult thing to manage, which is that the only real HR that you, the only real top A grade talent at the outset is the people that are going to attracted to working with you because they're attracted to working with you. You can't bid for it on the open market. You don't have the cash. So you end up having thin pockets and knowing when to change out, knowing when to, to uh, invest big and go long on, on something. That, that turns out to be a very important skill, but not one easily learned. I, st- I still screw it up all the time, unfortunately. Now, the, with different iterations of a company, it requires people with different skill sets. Um, so how do you think about building out a, like a management team like in each phase of your business? Is, like, that can be a challenge for companies. Uh, yes, it is very challenging. I don't think that there is any um, simple formula to it. It is a 
very much a fluid thing. We've gone through lots of evolution. I mean, we've been now doing the cube for 10 years, right? So we've gone through lots of evolutions of how the market has shifted. And I've found that we had massive gaps in knowledge as the market was shifting. Hell, we just went through one in the last you know year and a half in terms of in terms of how things have changed in the buying amongst the agency buying market, and we had gaps in our gaps in our talent. And uh, you have to go out and bring those ideas in. It's interesting when I look across the table, this very table, when we have our management meetings in here, I can really group people into when they came in the organization, what kind of talent wave that was part of, because what was the big problem that was occupying our attention when they joined the organization? Um, and that's how I think about it. What what new skill, what new knowledge and skills do I need? That or do we need as an organization that we that certainly I don't have, um, and then how do we go recruit those people and bring them in, and um, that's really how I look at it. Where do we have gaps? Where the market is now, and where do we have gaps in our knowledge about where that market's heading? And um, we got to go find those people. And how do you evaluate talent, regardless of level? You know, I wish there was a great formula for that too. Uh, this is one of the. I think on an individual level, it is one of the hardest things to do. And anybody that tells me they they have perfected the system and and get it right, you know, with more than fifty to sixty percent accuracy, um, one they should be very wealthy just doing that. Um, and, or two, I don't believe them. Mm-hmm. Um, the hit rate is 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 not what you'd want it to be. Uh, you make almost as many mistakes as you do successes. Um, and that screening process turns out to be a, a very difficult one to do um, consistently. And, um, you know, why is that? I've asked myself that question many, many times why that is. And, you know, a lot of times we're, we certainly are very influenced by this kind of, you know, interview interaction. I mean, that's mostly what the selection criteria is. And if you look at the skills that it takes to succeed and, and, and walk away from that interaction and have a really positive opinion, um, they don't necessarily correspond as much as we might think they do to um, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Like, look, look at a salesperson, for example. What I found in salespeople, um, it's almost the case that the prior – Experience doesn't matter. It's almost the case that the knowledge they bring to the job doesn't matter. What seems to matter, what seems to be the biggest predictor of success is tenacity, attitude, ability to uh, protect their ego in the face of, you know, daily people telling them they don't want to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that, that you know, people, uh, people will tell you they have that skill. You will ask questions that you think reveal that skill. Um, but it's really difficult to really select for that skill. Yeah. And uh, often for that reason, I think your best salespeople will often be total surprises to you in terms of in terms of who they turn out to be. So once you do hire, you know, an, an all star employee, uh, it's a competitive market. What do you do as far as retaining and keeping people motivated? Uh, the answer is never enough. Uh, and I've had to come to accept first and foremost that especially if you look at our workforce, which tends to be a lot of younger professionals, you know, coming up, uh, they move around a lot more than, uh, you know, maybe we did. And and so you really got to expect that once you get three to five years, you're really in a zone where the, these folks are probably looking to, looking to move on. And that's not a bad thing. So right. you have to, I think you have to accept that. Um, but then the other thing that I've I've kind of done is, I want it to be a very stimulating environment. And by stimulating, I don't mean easy. I don't mean coddled. I don't mean, I don't mean that at all. 
Uh, what I often talk about is the, the environment that I want to be part of is what it feels like a graduate seminar all the time. You're always discussing interesting ideas, big ideas, they're hard problems, and you're having vigorous debate about them. And sometimes it's not a pleasant or fun debate. Sometimes it's difficult. Um, and if you don't want to be part of that environment, then it's probably not going to be happy, you know, in working, working around me, for example. But that's what I want to be part of. And the people that I select for, well, I think I select for, I should say more accurately, they self-select to stay. Um, that's, that's what they want to do too. And, that, and they enjoy it. And that, 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 that's the thing. I think we put a lot more emphasis on the monetary rewards than the intellectual rewards. Um, the monetary rewards have to be market. Nobody feels good showing up every day feeling like they're being taken advantage of. That's, so that's, that's a given. But beyond that, there's a lot of people that are going to pay the same, same market wage for, for a given individual. What makes an individual select and then stay at some place is, um, is really all about to their, their intellectual stimulation and what satisfaction they think they're getting out of that. And that really, my observation, has a very little to do with the day-to-day -day monetary rewards. It has a lot to do with the, the interaction that's going on. And, um, you know, I, I'm retention of senior executives have had pretty good success on that. I mean, I can count on less than one hand, actually, the number that I've, have voluntarily left. Um, so I've been pretty good about that. Um, but it's, it is based on that idea of creating not a coddled environment, but a can, oftentimes can be a really difficult and challenging environment, but it's stimulating. I, I can promise you that it will always be stimulating. You'll be challenged. You will be challenged. And I agree with your point of, uh, you know, people when they're making decisions to stay at a company or potentially move on, you know, the monetary piece. Um, so my background as a recruiter, you know, I would have these conversations every day and uh, the monetary piece usually worked itself out. Uh, people made decisions based on uh, people they're going to be working with, the challenges as far as the problem that they're solving, and their career growth. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. was like those foundation. And uh, if someone was like leading with the monetary piece, it was actually a flag because that just told me they felt like they were underpaid. So I agree as far as uh, the motivators for people making job changes there. So what's the, uh, the future for the queue? Well, my view is that what we're doing is a fundamental marketing technique. It's a new marketing technique, but it's a fundamental one, or I should say will become a fundamental one, that every organization will be doing. I mean, the, the, nobody, nobody believes that uh, marketing or, frankly, any business function is, a, is going to become less data-driven. In fact, if anything, it's becoming more data-driven uh, because that's where you gain competitive advantage. And as a result of becoming more, more data-driven, the inputs to those models to that those processes which inherently is the data is becoming more and more of something that CMOs and others focus on where am I getting the data that I'm using to make these decisions and so I think as a result the CMOs uh, job responsibility I've extend that to CEOs too because across the broader functional uh, expanse of the organization are looking or asking the questions what is my data strategy do I have one? I mean, that's actually a term that is not, was not even in common use two, three years ago. But I think these days it is. What's my strategy for using the data that I'm generating, for getting access to data outside of my organization, for um, uh, making sure I'm in compliance around collection of data, which you know, obviously has become a big issue as well. And I think that the, all the senior executives are more and more going to have to deal with that. And as they do deal with that, when they ask that question, where am I sourcing my data, increasingly the answer is going to turn to, I want transparency. I want to know where it's coming from. 
I want to be able to judge the relevancy of it. Is it good for me or bad? And when they when they do that, that when they do that, that plays exactly to our view of where the market's heading, which is data is fundamental, transparent data is important. Be able to judge where you're getting your data from and and and, and have the ability to use it based on your relationships with those with those suppliers, which is a very different point of view than the traditional aggregator model, uh, which we think has some pretty fundamental challenges in that in that new world. So the Q's mission is that all companies are using transparent data source transparently from other brands as part of their marketing mission. So the future looks bright then. We think so. What do you do for fun outside of work? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, being a CEO, as I've now been, we were talking about earlier, 1998, 1998 yeah. is when I started BitPipe. So with, with a few interruptions, I've been a sort of continuously uh, startup CEO for, for 20 years now. Um, it is a you know, full-time, 24-7 job. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I have two, two kids. They're, they're now uh, they're looking for colleges this year. They're juniors and they're going to be going to college. So between this and the, and the, and the, um, and, and the family, you know, there is not a lot of extra time. Yeah. Having said that, um, you know, I'm a do photographer, uh, or aspire to be one, I guess would be more, more accurate statement. And, uh, you know, try to get as much, um, uh, running events and things like that in as I can, but that's about it. There's nothing, Nothing, nothing uh, uh, earth-shaking about it. I have a CFO who is a world-class triathlete, uh, and he managed to get that done. But I have nothing so so grand as all that. Aspiring photographer, though. <laughs> when you retire, you can spend more time doing that. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> when I retire, that's an interesting concept. Right. Yeah. Um, so, how many employees is the queue? Uh, let's see. As of today, we are probably around 160-ish as wow. of today. Yeah. And you're hiring, right? Yeah. Yeah. Always hiring. I mean, that's another thing back to that discussion about HR. I mean, there's always constant churn. I mean, people are making career decisions, moving decisions, life decisions, and um, that requires you to sort of constantly be recruiting. And that is another lesson that I, people say it all the time, but I, I found it's difficult to mentally get your arms around that that if you're doing something over a longer period of time with a large number of individuals, um, that notion of that constant churn that's going on is just a natural feature of things, and you just have to plan around that, that it does take a little bit of mental shift to think about that. We like to think about things as people being static. You know, Aiden will always be here, or whomever will always be here, but they won't. They won't. There will be reasons that they they go away. And it's okay. And it's okay. It's expected. Some level it's expected. Well, Jay, thanks so much for taking the time today Thank and you. sharing your advice and words of wisdom. I appreciate it. And it was definitely interesting hearing more about the queue. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. I do yeah. want to say one thing, though. Oh. I went to Vail. Because <laughs> you said it, I'm like, I totally, I blanked. I was just like, I don't remember where I went in Colorado. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.